0: Now we're gonna talk about hyper eosinophilia and hyper eosinophilic syndrome. As an overview, we'll talk about the classification of hyper eosinophilic syndromes, how you diagnose it, what the common presenting symptoms are and what the secondary causes are. So we'll start with eosinophilia. And I think this is a really important take home point for you. Um, You can tell that when we're looking at eosinophil severity, eosinophilia severity, we're looking at the absolute eosinophil count. So oftentimes we are trained to look at the eosinophil percentage, but I want to make the point that you really should look at the absolute eosinophil count, which can help stratify how severe eosinophilia is. And so the percentage can vary depending on what the white blood cell count is, but the absolute eosinophil count can really let you know if it's mild, moderate, or severe. A normal eosinophil count is anywhere between 0 and 500, and then mildly elevated is between 500 and 1,500, moderately elevated is between 1,500 and 5,000, and then severely elevated is greater than 5,000. We also look for tissue eosinophilia, and this can be a little bit more tricky. So you need to meet at least one of the following criteria. So eosinophils greater than 20% of the nucleated cells in the marrow or markedly increased tissue infiltration. According to a pathologist that's experienced in looking for eosinophilia, And then really importantly, looking for extensive extracellular deposition of eosinophil-derived proteins on immunostaining. And this is because eosinophils may not be found in the biopsy, but you may find evidence that eosinophils were there and part of the pathogenesis if you can find um, degranulated proteins. So staining for the, the granule proteins is very important for this reason. Now, when we talk about hyper eosinophilic syndrome, it's really important to know that this is a diagnosis of exclusion. And there are a few criteria that need to be met to call something hyper eosinophilic syndrome. So one is having blood eosinophilia greater than 1500 or marked tissue eosinophilia on more than one occasion. The second is ruling out any alternative diagnoses. So there shouldn't be another explainable cause such as infection, malignancy, drug reaction and so on and so forth. And then seeing that there's evidence of end organ involvement with clinical clinical manifestations. I also wanna make the point here that in older literature hyper eosinophilic syndrome, it was always noted that the eosinophilia should be there for six months or longer. We now know that if you wait six months to make the diagnosis, this can lead to extreme morbidity and mortality. So really the bloody eosinophilia just needs to be documented on more than one occasion with no other discernible cause. In terms of how patients manifest with hyper eosinophilic syndrome, In 2009, we did a retrospective study looking at 188 patients with hyper eosinophilic syndromes from 11 sites worldwide, including from the United States and Europe, and found that the majority of the patients presented with skin symptoms, which were varied, anything from paritis to angioedema, lung symptoms, GI tract symptoms, followed by musculoskeletal, just general constitutional symptoms, and then heart, lung, and hematologic symptoms. I also wanna bring up the point here that 7% of the patients in the study were found to have eosinophilia by routine lab evaluation only. And this is another reason why it's very important to carefully look at the differential on the CBC to look for eosinophilia. What's even more important is a study showed that although most patients frequently present with skin symptoms, lung symptoms, and GI tract involvement, the subsequent manifestations can be quite devastating. So more than 20% of patients can experience cardiovascular and neurologic complications, which can be a major cause of morbidity and mortality. Through advances in molecular diagnostics, we now have identified certain subtypes of hyperiosinophilic syndrome. And we'll talk about some of these subtypes in greater detail, but I want to give you an overview of them here. So myeloproliferative subtype um, means that the patient presents with myeloproliferative symptoms Um, without proof of clonality, or they may present with uh, clonal eosinophilia, including the FIP1L1 platelet-derived growth factor receptor alpha mutation, which leads to chronic eosinophilic leukemia. In the lymphocytic variant, uh, we see that there are populations of T-cells that secrete eosinophilopoietic cytokines, such as IL-5, which drive eosinophilia, and they may be clonal, or you may not find a discernible T-cell clone. Overlap syndrome is where we see organ-restricted eosinophilic disorders, such as a patient with eosinophilic gastrointestinal disorder that has peripheral eosinophilia, or a patient with chronic eosinophilic pneumonia with peripheral eosinophilia. The associated category means that eosinophilia was found in association with a defined disorder, such as inflammatory bowel disease or eosinophilic granulatory granulomatosis with polyangiitis or sarcoidosis, for example. The undefined category really is the largest category of patients with hyperosinophilic syndrome, and this can be divided in patients with benign eosinophilia, so those that um, present asymptomatically without evidence of organ involvement, um, those with episodic eosinophilia with cyclic angioedema, and so this is also known as glyc syndrome. And then patients, and this is the most broad category, with symptomatic eosinophilia, but they don't have features of myeloproliferative or lymphocytic forms. And lastly, um, familial hyper syndrome, which is extremely rare. Um, it's been mapped to chromosome 5, uh, 5Q, 31 to 33. And uh, there is a family that is known to have eosinophilia uh, in multi-generationally, uh, with varied, with varied outcomes. When we look at HES subtypes in a retrospective cohort, we see that 11 to 12% of patients have both lymphoid or myeloid have either lymphoid or myeloid variants. About 32% of patients have idiopathic HES, which is the largest group um, in, in terms of subtypes. About 26% of patients have overlap, overlap subtype, and about 12% of patients have associated HES. And when we look at associated HES, this can include neoplasms, helminthic disorders, drug, drug allergy, immunodeficiency, and other causes. So we're going to focus on a few of the subtypes that I mentioned. The first is the myeloproliferative or myeloid subtype. And these patients may have documented or presumed clonal eosinophilic involvement. Some examples include platelet-derived growth factor receptor uh, and rearrangements, FGFR1 rearrangements, JAK2, genetic alterations and chronic eosinophilic leukemia. Um, Just a story, these patients were initially identified in the 1970s, and they consisted of young males who presented with cardiovascular and neurologic complications, were extremely sick, and on average lived only about six months. We now know that those patients likely had myeloid or myeloproliferative hyperacinophilic syndrome due to the platelet-derived growth factor receptor alpha mutation, where we see a male predominance. A very high mortality if untreated. And there are a few key uh, biomarkers that we may see to clue us into uh, the fact that someone might have myeloid HES. And this includes an elevated serum tryptase and elevated serum vitamin B12 levels. The lymphocytic or lymphoid variant um, of HES means that you have HES with clonal or phenotypically abnormal lymphocyte populations that produce cytokines such as IL-5, and this drives the eosinophilia. We know that you can have CD neg- CD3 negative, CD4 positive, um, lymphocytic, HES, and patients with episodic angioedema and eosinophilia known as leg syndrome also fall into this category. Unlike the myeloid variant, this is equally common in men and women. And we see high rates of skin and soft tissue involvement In terms of biomarkers, we see elevated total IgE levels and elevated chemokine levels of CCL17, which is also known as TARC. And it's really important to know that these patients can progress to lymphoma in about five to 25% of cases. Overlap HES, um, and these again are patients that have um, peripheral eosinophilia greater than 1500, but the manifestations are restricted to a single organ. We usually see this with eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, which is EGPA. We also see this often with eosinophilic gastrointestinal disorders, um, specifically eosinophilic esophagitis and eosinophilic gastritis. Um, And this may be challenging to distinguish from idiopathic HES, um, but generally these patients have single-organ restricted disease, unlike idiopathic HES, where they often have multi-organ disease. And then undefined ATS, this is the largest category. So this means ATS of unknown cause and it really doesn't meet criteria for any of the other categories. Again, we often see multi-system involvement um, and this is the most frequently um, diagnosed form of HES. In terms of secondary causes of hyper and again, this is secondary causes of hyper eosinophilia not HES. they include allergic disorders, um, such as asthma, atopic dermatitis, allergic rhinitis. And I want to point out here, though, that allergic disorders rarely cause persistent eosinophilia greater than 1,500, with a few exceptions. Drug hypersensitivity is the number one cause of hyper eosinophilia in the United States. Infection, especially helminthic infections, the number one cause of hyper eosinophilia worldwide. Um, hematologic and neoplastic disorders can certainly cause uh, hypereosinophilia, and these can include hematologic malignancies as well as solid tissue malignancies. Immunologic disorders, such as immune deficiency, for example, DOC-8 deficiency, hyper-IgE, and Omen syndrome are all associated with hypereosinophilia. And then there are other autoimmune disorders that are associated with hypereosinophilia as well. And then there's some miscellaneous causes of hypereosinophilia, and these can include adrenal insufficiency, cholesterol emboli, radiation exposure, to name a few. So when we think about the differential diagnosis and excluding secondary causes when we want to make a diagnosis of hyper syndrome, the number one thing is to evaluate for drug hypersensitivity reactions. As I mentioned, drug hypersensitivity is the most common cause of hyper in the United States and it can be caused by almost any agent. And so the really um, important take home point here is to really discontinue any non-essential pharmacotherapies before diagnosis. Secondly is evaluation for parasitic infections. And this can be dictated by exposure, clinical signs and symptoms, travel history, and strongyloides, I want to um, raise the point, is an important one to rule out, especially um, in that it's uh, it's endemic in the Southeast United States. So it's not something that you have to travel to get strongyloides and can be asymptomatic. And then certainly evaluating for neoplasms because eosinophilia can proceed both blood and solid organ neoplasms. So this is a really um, helpful slide because um, this can give you a guide in terms of recommended evaluation um, for hyper eosinophilia and end organ complications. So we start off with a general evaluation and the general labs that you want to get are CBC with differential, again, looking at the absolute eosinophil count, a peripheral smear, flow cytometry on the peripheral blood. And this is really looking for clonal populations of T-cells a baseline serum tryptase and serum vitamin B12 because we want to screen for myeloid HES, uh, stool ova and parasites and strongyloides antibody because we want to screen for for parasitic disease, HIV screening for infection, Uh, serum IgE, which if it's elevated can help point us towards a lymphoid variant of HES And then a said, right, CRP, ANA, and ANCA because we're looking for autoimmune connective tissue disorders, which could uh, contribute to eosinophilia. In terms of screening for end organ involvement, cardiac screening generally includes checking a serum troponin, ECG, and echocardiogram. GI screening includes checking liver enzymes, pulmonary screening, checking PFTs, chest X-ray, or other chest imaging as indicated. Renal screening, looking at blood urea, looking at BUN and creatinine and a urinalysis. And then if there is something that raises concern on the initial screening for end organ manifestations, then you can look further um, into uh, screening with uh, cardiac MRIs, bone marrow biopsies, kidney biopsies, further neurologic imaging, uh, endoscopy and biopsies, skin biopsies, um, bronch, lung biopsy, and chest CT, to name a few. So this gives you a really good framework of how to start the evaluation, how to do basic screening, and then how to follow up on any screening abnormalities. So in summary, HES is characterized by eosinophilia either in the tissue or blood, clinical symptoms, and end organ involvement with the absence of other diagnoses that could be causing it. Dermatologic and pulmonary and GI manifestations are really common initial presentations of HES, but if HES is not diagnosed promptly and treated promptly, it can cause irreversible cardiovascular and neurologic complications, and so this is why it's really important to make the diagnosis.